Right, this is uh, the second in our new series, which I have called Cerebrating the Scriptures. Cerebration, not celebration, although I hope you will celebrate them, but cerebration means to think, to think deeply. You get the word cerebral from it. Um, most of the time we just take the scriptures for granted. We just read them and, and that's it. Uh, but we, we need to engage with the scriptures themselves as an entity. Uh, are they reliable? Uh, why should we believe them? How should we interpret them? And so on and so forth. So uh, we're going to be covering some of uh, those kind of uh, concepts um, in this series. Um, and in our, our last study, we, we looked briefly at uh, some spurious uh, understandings of the Bible treating it as tantamount to, uh, I called it an almanac, uh, where you look at it as though it's just a compendium of facts and stories and truths all mingled together. And uh, you can just um, treat it a little bit like little Jack Horner, who sat in a corner eating his Christmas pie and he put in his thumb and he pulled out a plum and said, that's a promise I can claim. <laughs> and um, I referred to a, an, an old chorus. John will remember this chorus that we used to sing most, uh, most heartily. Every promise in the book is mine. Every chapter, every verse, every line, all the blessings of his love divine. Every promise in the book is mine. That is rubbish. <laughs> Uh, now I know that 1 Corinthians 1.20 says all the promises of God are in him, yes, and in him, amen, to the glory of God by us. But that little word in him means that what God is saying yes to is everything that is located in God's purposes in Christ. And it's not just a blanket endorsement that we can... Uh, look at any scripture and say that'll do for me. Um, and, and the sad thing is that that then reduces our Bible reading to just trawling through the scriptures and looking for something which we think fits our situation. And if it's good, then we'll claim that. And uh, there's a whole raft of... Uh, um, teaching that has sprung up called the Name It and Claim It Brigade. <clears throat> uh, that all you've got to do is find an appropriate scripture and if you keep saying it long enough and you keep praying it long enough, it will come to pass, uh, which is nonsense. And there's another one that's like it that says, God says it, uh, I believe it, that settles it. <clears throat> um, it. It is noticeable, of course, that people who... <clears throat> treat the Bible like that, never claim the bad promises. They never claim the promises of judgment. They never claim the promises that involve pain or loss or defeat. And incidentally, the Bible has a lot to say about Christians suffering pain and tribulation and that it works for us. That if you haven't got that kind of stuff going on in your life, you're actually <coughs> um, a substandard no, that's too big a word. Uh, but you're not actually uh, entering into Christian life. Uh, in the same way, a, a similar approach is taken with regard to the future, in which the Bible is regarded as a kind of horoscope. And so people are looking at the Bible for texts that will give them directional guidance about their future. I want a job, I'll find a promise. Uh, I want to, I want to know who to marry. I was telling, <laughs> I was telling Caroline last week of, uh, I, I, I found a funny illustration of a Roman Catholic fellow who was, uh, uh, interested in, 
choosing one of two women to, to be his wife. One of them was Margaret, the other one was Maria. <clears throat> and so he, he was praying very, very hard and decided he would go into church and, and really lay hold of God. And as he was praying, he lifted up his eyes and saw across the channel, Ave Maria. <clears throat> oh, Ave Maria. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and some people read the Bible alongside uh, their newspapers and, uh, and TV news bulletins looking for signs of the second coming. Ah, this is what Jesus said, and, and, and here it is. And down through the years, we've had all kinds of people being identified as the Antichrist and, and, and all kinds of stuff. Um, and, and even preachers can fall into the trap by just stringing a bunch of Bible texts together um, and, and thinking that they have proved the theme or the claim that, uh, that they are making. It takes more than just turning up a concordance and looking at the same, for the same word and then stringing them all together uh, to accurately uh, discern and understand the word of God. So just let me uh, complete where we stopped last week by saying the Bible is not just a book of promises. And, and if there are promises in the Bible, and of course there are, unless the Bible makes it clear that a statement or a promise is of universal application, we must treat the promise as unique to the personal, the people to whom the promise was made. We can't just say, it was good enough for Daniel, it's good enough for me. So, for example, the promise that God made to Abraham and his descendants that he would inherit the world, the earth, was made to him by divine covenant. But Romans 4.16 says that since Christians, whether Jewish or Gentile, share the same faith in God that Abraham exhibited, thereby making us members of Abraham's family, we are defined as his descendants, and therefore we are equally inheritors of his promise, because the scripture says so that those who are of faith are of faithful Abraham and the promise is made sure to us as well as to him. And that's not a promise that we have to claim. You don't have to wrestle with God about that. That is a promise that God has made. And it's the assurance that what God has bound himself to do for Abraham and his family will assuredly come to pass. Now, on the other hand, God made another promise to Abraham. He said to Abraham and Sarah, you will have a son. And that promise is unique to them. And however much the pain and grief there are to childless couples, you can't look at that promise and say, God will do for us what he did for Abraham and Sarah, though God may heal barrenness. Make that clear. But you can't do that on the basis of, say, of saying there's a promise in the Bible, I'm going to put my foot on it and claim it. We cannot also argue that because Acts 10.34 says that God is no respecter of persons, that what God did for David or Daniel or his three Hebrew friends or Paul or anybody else in the Bible, he must therefore do for us. You see, when God said to Israel in the wilderness that he was the Lord who healed them, and subsequently the scripture records there was not one feeble one among their tribes, that does not mean that we as Christians can lay hold of that promise and say, therefore, God is going to heal me and we will never have sickness or we will never face illness. We can't do that. That promise was made within its own context. 
That doesn't mean to say that God is not a healer, but it just means that we can't take hold of that particular promise and say, you did it for Israel, Lord, you've got to do it for me. Uh, and, and what Peter meant by God is no respecter of persons was not that God's promises are universal to every believer, but that God is not influenced by the status that we human beings attach to people. What Peter was saying, that whether you're a king or a commoner, whether you're rich or whether you're poor, whether you're male, female, Jew or Gentile, educated and unlearned, whether you're black, white or yellow, all alike are equally loved, equally welcome to enter his kingdom as we heard this morning, and his ear is open to our prayer, whatever or even despite our status, because God doesn't look at people in terms of what their status is. He just loves them and welcomes them, all of them. Now, conversely, God's Spirit sovereignly chooses what spiritual giftedness each member of the body will exercise. So, the Scripture says, not all are apostles. Some are. Not all are prophets or teachers or workers of miracles or whatever. Some are, but not all. And it is the Spirit of God who chooses what you are to be. Your job is to find out what the Spirit of God has made you and then to operate within that gift. And the responsibility of all of us is to say to one another, every one of us is gifted in some way. We've all received a measure of the gift of Christ. Uh, if you like, we're all members of his body, and every one of us is meant to participate, even the children so that we can say, I can hear God from any one of you. I can receive something from God from every one of you. But nobody can say, I've got the gift of healing. It's my unique thing and I am able to dispense it. You can't. You can't. The gifts are the gifts of the Spirit. And all we are is just vehicles of that particular ministry. Now, many, if not most, evangelical Christians consider the Bible to be authored by God. Now, I assume you're all happy with what I've just said, which kind of uh, sums up where we were last week. Uh, now, most evangelicals consider the Bible to be authored by God himself through the agency of human writers whose personality he allowed to remain while ensuring that the words that they uttered and wrote were actually his own. And they argue that therefore the Bible is without error, it's infallible, and it's utterly true from Genesis 1 right the way through to Revelation 22. These authors were not taking dictation. They weren't hearing a word and then writing that down like a secretary. But nevertheless, in their own words, they were expressing his very thoughts accurately and truly in the words that they used. And uh, I turn to the, the, the first clause of the statement of faith of Assemblies of God, which states, we believe that the Bible that is, the Old and New Testaments, excluding the Apocrypha, is the inspired word of God, the infallible, all-sufficient rule for faith and practice. Um, that's not uh, unique to Assemblies of God. Many groups have got a similar statement. And, and to support that statement, two texts are uh, generally chosen. Uh, one is found in 2 Timothy 3, 15 to 16, and the other one is found in 2 Peter 1, 21. And I want to look at both of them tonight. So if you've got your Bibles, uh, you can turn to 2 Timothy 3, 15 to 16, where Paul writes to Timothy and says, how you from infancy have known the holy writings which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. 
Every scripture is inspired by God and useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And goes on to say that the man of God may be mature and so on. And, uh, and it's verse 16 that is kindly, is banded about as the proof that every scripture is inspired by God. There it is. Uh, that's, that's the definitive proof. But I've remarked on this particular pericope before. Pericope is a little slice of scripture, a little passage of scripture. Uh, to make the point, firstly, uh, that when Paul was writing, the only scriptures that were known were the Old Testament. There was no New Testament. And I don't think that Paul knew that he was writing a New Testament. He was just writing, uh, sometimes quite passionately as to the Galatians, uh, the things that he wanted them to know. So that's the first point. But secondly, that the words, every scripture is inspired by God, are actually only three words in the Greek language. Those three words are pasa, graphe, theopneustos. And, and literally translated, they read all, pasa, graphe, writings, theopneustos, God breathed. God breathed. Uh, now you'll notice that that phrase is without a verse, uh, without a verb rather. It just simply says, all writings God breathed. Now, in English, that doesn't make sense. Because for us to understand English, there's always got to be a verb. Take you back to your English classes, you've got to have a subject, you've got to have an object, and you've got to have a verb. Uh, so, we've got to put a, a, a verb in there. And the verb that is chosen is the verb to be, or in this particular case, is. And so, the, there are versions that say, all scripture is God-breathed. But it is equally true to say, all God-breathed scripture is. And that means there are two ways of looking at it. You can look at, at the words of the Old Testament, and you can say, every word is the word of God. Or you can say that among all the words of the New Testament, only that which is God-breathed is profitable. And you pay your money and you take your choice. Because nobody can say categorically, one is right and the other is wrong. Uh, now, those who hold the all scripture is God-breathed view argue that if you take the other, all God-breathed scripture, that implies that some words in the Old Testament are not God-breathed and therefore they're not important. And therefore, you can pick and choose what you believe is God-breathed and what is not God-breathed. And so uh, that means anything's fair game. You can make the scriptures mean whatever you want them to mean. But taking that point, and of course it, it is valid, uh, you then find you have your own difficulties with the other view that says all Scripture is God-breathed. And I just want to give you one of many uh, uh, illustrations throughout the Old Testament. <coughs> I want to turn you to 2 Samuel 24, verse 1. And there it says, The Lord's anger again raged against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go count Israel and Judah. So that plainly says the Lord is angry with Israel and he incites David to number the people. Uh, later on in the chapter, we then read that God punished David for doing what he incited him to do. Uh, not only so, but 
Then instead of punishing David directly, he punishes him by killing 70,000 of his soldiers, which seems a bit unfair on the soldiers. So that's a problem in itself. But then we turn to 1 Chronicles 21 verse 1, where we read of the same incident. And there it reads, an adversary opposed Israel, or a Satan opposed Israel, inciting David to count how many warriors Israel had. Now that resolves part of the difficulty of God being unrighteous, because now he's not punishing David for uh, for uh, for doing what he was told. He's punishing David for listening to the wrong voice, to listening to the voice of the adversary. Although that doesn't um, diminish the difficulty of the 70,000 soldiers who were killed rather than David. But the point I'm making is both accounts of those scriptures can't be right. It was either God who did it, or it was a Satan, an adversary, who did it. So if you believe that every scripture, every word of scripture is God-breathed, you've got a problem here. Can you see the problem? And, and that is only one of many occasions where you can find conflict. So... There are problems either way. <coughs> I, I just ask you to consider this. Perhaps Paul wasn't intending that when he wrote that scripture. He wasn't intending to say, you've got to look at every word uh, and translate word for word and every word has actually come out of the mouth of God. Maybe Paul was making a more general point that what the scriptures are saying when you look at them in the whole, is accurate. It's what God wants us to know, and Timothy, you can trust it. You can believe the narrative that is there, and we'll talk about narrative on another occasion, uh, because it's utterly reliable. Now, we, we actually know that there are things in the Bible that are factually incorrect, if we take them at face value. Uh, take, for example, the genealogies in Matthew chapter 1. Matthew 1.17 tells us that all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 <laughs> generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. That's what Scripture says. But Scripture itself reveals that these generations that Matthew delineates there are not complete generations. There are names that he has omitted. He's left them out. And some have suggested it was because he was shortening them to make the lists more memorable so that people could bring them to mind. Others have suggested that because in the Hebrew, um, as, as with the Greek, uh, letters and numbers are referred to by the same, um, the same words. Uh, and and uh, it's, it's well known that the number 666 can actually uh, be translated in a number of different ways. I'm not going to go into that. Uh, tonight, because I don't want you to get hung up on that. Uh, but the fact is that the number 14 equates to David. So maybe Matthew is trying to make a point <laughs> that that is all about David's line. He's, he's trying to make the point that Jesus is the son of David. Now, that's speculation. We don't know why. Matthew chose to do that. Um, but it is clear that we're not meant to take the number literally because factually it is not true. 
a similar case can be taken in the Old Testament with the pre-diluvian, that is the pre-flood patriarchs. Uh, we read that a particular patriarch reached a certain age, then he had a son, and then he lived so many years until he died. And it's possible uh, for you to do like Archbishop Usher uh, did many, many years ago, to go through the book of Genesis, working from Adam all the way through to Methuselah, and you can uh, reckon up the dates of how long they lived before they had a son, and so on and so forth, and you can work out that you can go back to the creation that it took place in August of 4004 BC. And that is made a case uh, for proving that, that the earth is a young earth, uh, despite all the scientific evidence that the earth has been around uh, for very much longer. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Uh, but you see, the word son in Hebrew is also used of grandson, great-grandson, great-great-grandson, and, and sons of generations to come. Uh, so Jesus is called the son of Abraham, although, of course, he wasn't his direct genetic son. And so immediately that means that we cannot look at that list of names in Genesis and assume that they all followed in, in sequence and there weren't uh, huge numbers of years between them. It's just a misuse of Scripture. So if by infallible you mean that the Bible is scientifically and literally accurate, that truth cannot be sustained. It is not, in fact, a truth. It is merely an opinion. Uh, in the ancient Near East, people believed uh, that God was responsible for everything that happened in life. You know the story of the book of Job. Job had seven sons. He had three daughters. And we read in the book that bears his name how God's adversary struck at this upright man by killing all his children with a great whirlwind that caused the house where they were feasting together to collapse on them and, and, and kill them. And Job's response was, and you all know it because we sing it very often, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, Job is looking at what happened to him through Hebrew eyes, in which everything is, is attributed to God. But manifestly, it was not God who was killing those kids. It was the devil. It was Satan. Uh, so this should alert us to be careful when we read Old Testament texts that God was responsible for particular events, that the Lord was punishing people or the Lord was... Uh, their view is that God's responsible for everything that happens. But we don't necessarily have to take that literally unless the Scripture makes it abundantly clear that it was so. Now, unquestionably, God is with us in every event of our lives. He's with us all the time. But this does not make him responsible for everything that happens in our lives. And I keep banging on about this uh, by objecting to the phrase, God's in control. You hear it said by Christians all the time, God's in control. He's not in control. If God's in control, he's responsible for what happens. The, the scriptural position is that God is sovereign. It means whatever happens, God can turn it round or use it to accomplish his divine purpose. 
And that's what Paul means when he says all things work together for good to them that love God and are the called according to his purpose. He is not saying that God is deliberately making you go through a hard time uh, and, and, and kind of putting you through all that uh, because he, he just wants to. Uh, what he's actually saying is God is sovereign. Whatever we're going through, whether it's good, bad, or indifferent, whether it means life or death, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, and God is sovereign. As Joseph said to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. So that same belief is still prevalent in the New Testament, remember the disciples saw a man who was born blind and they said to Jesus, who sinned? Was it this guy or was it his parents? And Jesus corrected them. He says, neither. Neither. You've got it all wrong. Uh, actually, the glory of God is going to be made manifest in him. So I trust you can see how a literalistic application of every word of Scripture is God-breathed cannot actually be sustained. Now let's look at that second text in 2 Peter 1, 15 to 21, where Peter writes, Indeed, I will also make every effort that after my departure, that is his death, you have a testimony of these things. For we did not follow cleverly concocted fables when we made known to you the power and return of our Lord Jesus Christ. No, we were eyewitnesses of his grandeur, for he received honor and glory from God the Father when that voice was conveyed to him by the majestic glory. This is my dear Son in whom I am delighted. When this voice was conveyed from heaven, we ourselves heard it, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Moreover, we possess the prophetic word as an altogether reliable thing. You do well if you pay attention to this as you would to a light shining in a murky place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you do well if you recognize this, that no prophecy of Scripture ever comes about by the prophet's own imagination for no prophecy was ever born of human impulse. Rather, men carried along by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. I'm not going to deal with that last bit, spoke from God, but just notice it and remember that most testimony uh, of, uh, of, of God communicating with men uh, has always been orally. It was... It was only later written, the first five books of uh, uh, the Pentateuch from Genesis uh, through to uh, uh, Numbers, Deuteronomy and so on, uh, are attributed to Moses. It is highly unlikely that Moses actually wrote all of them. Uh, although, of course, Moses was fully capable of writing because he'd been uh, trained in Egypt to do so. And, and, and remember also that uh, most people in that ancient world, as there are many in our world, cannot even read. So uh, that's why so many times the people gather together and the scripture is read to them because that was the way that uh, the word of God was communicated to people. So Peter is referring to a prophecy in this, in this passage. In all likelihood... That found in Numbers 24, verse 17, which says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not close at hand. A star will march forth out of Jacob, and a scepter will rise out of Israel. He will crush the skulls of Moab and the heads of the sons of Sheth. An interesting prophecy because it was uttered by Balaam, who was a false prophet. Uh, what Peter is saying is that he and James and John three of uh, the chosen disciples of Jesus had personally seen him transfigured before them 
on that mountain. You remember the occasions found in Matthew 17. Uh, and there Jesus was honored and glorified and acknowledged as God's dear son by an audible voice. Peter says, we heard it and we saw with our own eyes Jesus transfigured in glory. And God was thus confirming to the three disciples, uh, so says Peter, that Jesus was the morning star who was to rule the world, according to the prophecy. Now, Peter was not seeking to say that every word of Scripture, whether it be prophecy or poetry or history or psalms or apocalypse, was infallible, but rather he is focusing on the prophecies uttered by several different people at different times and pointing out simply that they were not expressing man-made hopes and dreams. It didn't come out of their own imagination. They were actually revealing what God had spoken to them. And Peter is saying, we know that's true because we were right there in the presence of the one they were speaking about, the one who is the fulfillment of all those uh, prophecies. So Peter is not here giving a general word saying, you've got to believe literally every word that happens in the Scripture. He's talking about the prophecies of the Christ who was transfigured before them and saying, we can rely on those prophecies about him because these prophets were not dreaming them up out of their own imagination, making them up. They were actually revealing to us God's purposes revealed in and through this one man. Now, I've taken the time to touch on this, and I'm only touching on it because it's a vast topic, as you can imagine because the Bible itself never makes a claim for infallibility. And the concept that it provides an all-sufficient rule for faith and practice leads to the idea that the Bible is a large rule book from which we can find answers for all the questions of life and specific directions and guidance for every situation in which we find ourselves. And I said, I pointed out to you last week how, how, how that's just not true. The Bible doesn't tell you who to marry, what job to have, where to live, what church to join, whether you should go and serve in the armed, armed service, whether you should buy sausages. It doesn't, it doesn't tell you those kind of things. You have to, Work that out for yourself. And God gives you a huge <coughs> latitude. There's almost a sense in which he says, marry who you like. The only thing is you do well if you marry a Christian, if you're a Christian, because you both then got the same love uh, of the Lord and there will not be a clash. Uh, but if we regard the Bible as a rule book, a rule for faith and practice, then that viewpoint gets encapsulated in such terms as the authority of the Scriptures, uh, by which our be belief and our behavior is then measured. And who measures it? Generally other people. And whether it's in the church or the denomination, or even the tradition to which we belong, whether we're Jewish or whether we're Protestant or whether we're Catholic, all these things are then claiming the authority of Scripture for the position that they hold. The Catholics claim the authority of Scripture. So do Protestants. So do Jews. So the Bible within this construct becomes then an instrument of regulation. And if we're not alert to it, we can then just become puppets dancing on a string. People who are conforming to a religious code or a set of beliefs or actions that are construed to be correct by those who believe they have the handle 
on what the Bible is saying, including me. So, the authority of the Scriptures is then in practice the authority of the church or the church elders or the denomination or the authority of its leaders. In its most extreme form, this was the case in the medieval Roman Catholic Church where its adherents were forbidden to read the Bible because we'll tell you what to believe. We don't want you to read the Bible. It's too dangerous for you to read the Bible. You'll get hold of the wrong end of the stick. So we'll read the Bible and we'll tell you what it means. And instead they were categorized on what to believe. Um, Caroline mentioned that last week. And, and, and so as, you, you, you then just parrot out what you've been taught. Uh, and, and you don't think. But the Bible is all about thinking. We have to think these things, and every generation has to think anew for itself. So, uh, thankfully, the, 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 the modern Catholic Church is more enlightened, and, uh, and they are doing some serious thinking, I am pleased to report, and changing their view on, on quite a lot of things. But unfortunately, the contemporary church, including the evangelicals, whilst holding a doctrine of the priesthood of all believers, in which we can <laughs> all hear from God and we can each read the scripture for ourselves and the spirit can speak to us all and we can all minister to God and for God, it is often under the guise of leadership become authoritarian and autocratic in its shepherding of congregations and assemblies by an interpretation of the scriptures that says only the leaders can have vision for the church. That is bunk. Uh, they certainly can't have vision for you. The fact is we are the church and, and God is able to speak to leaders from the church, and, and we can find the mind of the Spirit by consulting together. It's part of the reason why I like being in a little circle like this, because it, this is more New Testament, except we'd have a big table in here and we'd have had a big meal. <clears throat> you see, I think God has got something far greater in mind, merely than giving us a book to regulate our behavior or codify our ethics, or provide a systematic theology of what to believe and how to run the local church. Now, lest I be understood unquestionably, the God-breathed scriptures have a primary place in Christian and indeed Jewish life. But in what sense are they authoritative? And how is that authority to be applied. You see, the very concept of authority itself has different meanings in different contexts. If I'm a member of a golf club, I must comply with the club's rules, covers its dress code, what shoes to wear in the clubhouse, when I'm allowed to use its course, what I've got to pay, and if I infringe those rules, I can be reprimanded or fined or even expelled by the authority of the club stewards committee. On the course, the game itself is regulated by the rule book of the Royal and Ancient Golf Club. It's the governing body in the UK of, of golf. And if I infringe the rules, I am penalized by adding strokes to my score, uh, at least in the, in the, in the official competition. Uh, in practice, uh, that, that is sometimes overlooked. Uh, but if I infringe the rules, I'm not banned from playing golf again. It's a different sense of authority. In fact, golf is one of the few games where the players police themselves. 
And if, if they've infringed the rule, they'll hold their hands up and say, I, I, I did that, and, and they'll take the stroke. In another occasion, if I'm arraigned in a criminal court, I'm tried under English law, and the authority is the guy who's sitting up on the desk uh, called the judge. If I'm a soldier, I'm a man under the authority of my senior officers who may be just a jumped up corporal or, or maybe as high up as the field marshal. Uh, if, if I'm an employee, my boss is the authority. He can sack me if I'm incompetent. But if I'm watching professional football, I might say of a player whose performance heavily influenced the outcome of the game, he stamped his authority on the game. He wasn't charging around, barking out orders and everybody doing it. He stamped his authority on it. It is often said of people like Sir David Attenborough, concerning wildlife, or Sir Simon Rattle, concerning music, or Dr. Tom Wright, concerning theology, that they are authority figures because of their expertise and the preeminence uh, by virtue of their knowledge and, and, uh, and uh, ability in the subject, they have authority. But that authority can, and I would say, should be challenged. Because if David Attenborough uh, were here and he was rabbiting on about how he believes in evolution, I would want to challenge him and say, you can't sustain that scientifically. Not because I'm a Christian, but on a scientific basis. And I would point out uh, all the things that have now come to our understanding that Darwin never knew because we know about DNA and we've got amazing uh, machines today that can investigate the subatomic world and we're learning new things all the time that are pointing to the fact that there's a designer that this didn't just happen and it's not just a, a, an accidental collision of atoms, atoms uh, somewhere. So can you see that these are all different concepts of authority and you can think of many more. Now in what sense can it be said that we are under the authority of Scripture? And most importantly, how is that authority to be enforced or applied? See, the Encyclopedia Britannica is authoritative. It's the go-to book if you want reliable and trustworthy information. But to treat the Bible as a religious encyclopedia Britannica, is to miss the point for which God gave it. It demeans the Bible, just as much as treating it as a horoscope or a storybook of heroes or a personal self-help guide to success or a lucky dip book of promises or even a devotional handbook. <laughs> though I very much hope you use it in your devotions, God did not give it for those purposes. <laughs> it is not a, a book of timeless truths. It is nor yet a model of how to live the Christian life or run the church. To look at the book of Acts and try to model the modern church after the church in Jerusalem or Antioch is to make the way those first-century Christians live for Christ in their world normative for us. And that's nonsense. It's actually attempting to replicate their experience. That's what we're, we're, we're wanting. We are wanting the success that they had. We're wanting to see the growth that they have. And we think if only we do it their way, it will happen. Hey, it's been tried. It don't work. That's not its purpose. So we've got to learn what it means to be living under scriptural authority. And in point of fact, the Bible has nothing or little to say about its innate authority. Instead, it insists everywhere 
that he who created the world and all that is in it is the only one who truly has authority over it. And Jesus said, after his death and resurrection, that the Father had delegated all his authority to Jesus. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. As Tom Wright pointedly remarks, he did not say all authority in heaven and earth is given to the books you chaps are going to go and write about me. <laughs> so he continues, the, the phrase authority of Scripture can only at best be shorthand for the authority of God in Jesus mediated through the, script, through the Scripture. Why, he said, will we even want to mention biblical authority? Why not just say we live under Jesus' authority and leave it at that? Wouldn't that be the biblical thing to do? Well, well, yes. But as centuries of Christian experience have demonstrated, the Bible is the God-given means through which we know who Jesus is and what he was about take the Bible away, diminish it, or water it down, and you are free to invent a Jesus just a little bit different from the Jesus who's hidden in the Old Testament and revealed in the New. We live under the Scripture, he says, because that is the way we live under the authority of God that has been vested in Jesus the Messiah, our Lord. Now, you might think this is splitting hairs, and that living under Scripture is this way is tantamount to saying we're living under the authority of Jesus and of the Bible. But this is not the case, because Jesus is preeminently greater than the Bible. And therefore the way he interprets the Bible is authoritative, authoritative for how we should read and interpret and understand it. You see, if all we had is the Bible, we'd come up with all kinds of false ideas of what it is saying. And for proof of that, you've only got to look at uh, Jesus' run-ins with the scribes and Pharisees who were reading the very same Bible that Jesus was reading, but they'd come up with a very different interpretation of what it was all about. And... and and of course, Jesus was finally crucified because they decided that they had to stop him giving his version of the scriptures rather than theirs. <coughs> so uh, I think we've got to understand that uh, when Jesus completely overrides the commands of scriptures, as he does, for example, with his view of the Sabbath and the food laws and even the temple itself, the very center of Jewish faith and life, we've got to listen to Jesus because we're Christ worshippers, not Bible worshippers. Got that? And we're almost out of time. So I've taken all this time to come to the heart of the issue. How are we to read and understand the Bible, seeing it as he saw it? And how are we to apply it in our 21st century world, see this space. <laughs> Cliffhanger. <laughs> okay. <laughs>